Our subject this evening, as it was this afternoon, is what I like about Muhammad. When I was in school, I don't recall whether it was elementary school or junior high or high, I had to learn a poem by heart. It was called and still is called the Psalm of Life by a poet called Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. And the first stanza of the poem says, Tell me not in mournful numbers, life is but an empty dream, and the soul is dead that slumbers, and things are not what they seem. But the stanza that applies to us tonight is the one that says, Lives of great men all remind us, we can make our lives sublime, and departing, leave behind us footprints on the sands of time. Now, whether we want to or not, we all leave footprints on the sands of time. For some, people follow in those footprints. For others, people avoid those footprints. But inevitably, we leave footprints on the sands of time. Now, our subject is what I admire about Muhammad. There are generally two classes of people. And I class them under the heading of the effect of their lives during and after death. Let me mention one great person whom I admire, Alexander the Great, a tremendous military genius. But I've never met someone who tries to pattern his life by the principles of Alexander's military exploits. I have not yet met that person. Perhaps they exist. I have never met them. But Alexander is indisputably regarded as one of the greatest military leaders of all time. We mentioned Marco Polo this morning or this afternoon. I have yet to meet anyone who has started a religious movement called the Marco Polo Brethren. I have never, I have never met them. But he was no doubt a great explorer and a great traveler. But then there are those who, after passing off the stage, people live their lives by the principles that these people have left behind. Their footprints in the sands of time. Let us take, for instance, Mother Teresa. She dedicated her life to helping the impoverished in the great slums of the cities of India. And there's an order of nuns after her who carry on her work. She is dead, she is gone, but her influence remains. And there are those who walk in the footprints on the sands of time that she has left. Large footprints. Mohandas Gandhi, at risk to life and limb, he fought against what he considered an unjust occupation of his land. And because of his efforts, his country was eventually released from the colonial grip and won its independence. And there are people today who pursue social change by the same techniques that Mohandas Gandhi used, and perhaps the most notable is our own Martin Luther King, in whose footstep people follow today because of the life he lived and the ideals for which he was willing to sacrifice his life and shed his blood. There was a man called Confucius. His teachings are followed today by un counted millions of people and whose lives have been changed profoundly, materially, 
educationally in many ways because they have incorporated in their lives the principles that this man propounded when he was alive. Principles of personal development. Principles of the determined acquisition of education as the certain means of lifting oneself from a low estate. The principles of the equality of the classes bound together by a determination to live noble lives. The principle that one ought without cessation develop the mind, develop the morals, and develop the manners. Confucius believed that learning should end in the grave, and so do I. His footprints are followed today by millions of people. There was a man called Buddha. He left large footprints in the sands of time. Footprints again that are followed by multiple millions of people. People who have a deep respect for life as Buddha taught it. People who pursue peace. People who believe the fundamental principle of life is love. People who believe, based on Buddha's teachings, that one ought not to be captured and caught like an animal in a cage by material things, but a person ought to be able to rise above them. People who believe in the Eightfold Path. We ought to speak good words and have good deeds and good work, good ambition, good thoughts. Buddha and his followers. And there was a man called Muhammad. And our subject is what I admire about Muhammad. Let me extend that admiration to those whom I have already named. Muhammad is associated with a religion that straddles the globe. A powerful, dominant religion. He taught, among other things, five things that I believe in myself and many others, even non-Muslims. One, Muhammad taught there's one God. I believe the same thing. I may not call my God what he called his, but I believe there's one God, and that is found in the text that, that functions as my authoritative holy text. Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and I believe that. Prayer. It's a vital part of Islamic life. It's a vital part of mine. It's a vital part of millions of Christians. Whether it's five times a day, once a day, or 50 times a day, we say that prayer is the breath of the soul. I believe in prayer. Fasting. It is not only something people do in the month of Ramadan, but fasting is something some Christians do. Once a week, some Christians fast. Usually the middle of the week, Wednesday, fasting for Christians is a very necessary spiritual exercise as essential as prayer and Bible study and engagement in evangelism. Giving alms to the poor. We're told by John, and whoso seeth his brother, whoso hath this world's needs or goods, 
and seeth his brother hath need, and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? John, that beloved disciple closest to Jesus Christ, he taught that we should take care of those less fortunate than we are. This is not simply an Islamic concept. It is a Christian concept. It exists in both religions, and I admire it, and I try to practice it. And Islam believes that there should be a pilgrimage to Mecca. I would love to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem, the Holy Land, and see where Jesus walked, and the disciples walked, and the Old Testament patriarchs lived their lives and crisscrossed the land going about the business of their God. I believe there's one God. I believe in prayer. I believe in fasting. I believe in supporting the poor. And I believe that we should regard certain sites as very important to us as part of the history. No wonder Jesus says so often, or the, the Old Testament tells us, remember, remember, remember. Remembering history is important and pilgrimages are part of remembering history. Yes, I admire Confucius. He lived his life, made his contribution, and then he died. He went the way of all flesh. I admire Buddha. He made a sterling contribution. Then he gave up the ghost and he died. I admire the prophet of Islam for his persistence. Even when he was driven from his homeland with just a few followers, you must at least admire the persistence in something he believed. But he died. In 632 A.D., then there was a man called Jesus. Like Confucius, he lived a human life. Like Buddha, he tried to provide answers to life's fundamental questions. Like Muhammad, he founded a movement which we call Christianity. Like these great men... He endured disappointment. He endured shame, rejection. We're told in John 1.11, He came unto His own, and His own received Him not. Confucius was rejected. Muhammad driven from his homeland or from his town. Buddha rejected. Christ rejected. And after a brief life of 33 and a half years, Jesus Christ died. So we have some strings of commonality. Human beings, all four, preached principles for the improvement of life, Give, gave of themselves for what they believed, and made the ultimate sacrifice for their beliefs. And all four died. But let me say, with all possible respect, that Confucius is still dead. That Buddha is still dead. That the prophet of Islam is still dead. But Jesus Christ, who made it particularly clear when he was alive, the evidence scientifically examined tells us that Jesus Christ, yes, having died, he rose from the grave. 
which to the, the, the reasonable mind should lead someone to say, let me take a second look at that man. How can a man die and come back from the grave? Well, there were other men who had that experience. Notably, Lazarus. But I need not take a second look at Lazarus. The son of the widow of Nain. Jesus raised him. He came back from the dead. The daughter of Jairus. She died. She came back from the dead when Jesus raised her. Eutychus, that young boy who fell asleep while Paul was preaching. Paul raised him from the dead. Acts chapter 20 verses 8 through 12. But I don't give a second look to Eutychus. Dorcas. Acts chapter 9, verse 40, Peter raised her from the dead. I say again, there have been people who died and came back. Jesus died and came back. What makes him different? This is what makes Jesus Christ different. Eutychus was raised by someone else. Dorcas was raised by someone else. Lazarus was raised by someone else. The woman in the life of Elijah, whose son was raised, that son was raised by someone else. Jesus was not raised by anyone but by himself. And this sets him apart from all those who have left footprints on the sands of time. Because these are footprints that deserve to be followed by every living man and woman. How can a man raise himself from the dead? What kind of power must he possess? That no other man who has ever lived and died claims to have possessed. And Jesus gave fair warning when he lived that he would do this. John chapter 2, reading verse 19. Jesus answered and said unto them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then said the Jews, Forty and six years was this temple in building, and wilt thou rear it up in three days? Verse 21, But he spake of the temple of his body. Jesus said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. I will raise it up. Whether or not they caught the significance of that tremendous statement Christ was saying, in three days after my death, I will raise myself from the grave. I am telling you, my beloved brothers and sisters, this is significant. It is a stupendous event that we must consider that a man who was also God had within himself. It was inherent within him to raise himself, to cancel death, to reverse death. To conquer death, yea, to destroy death. In Matthew chapter 26, verse 61, one of the false prophets or one of the false witnesses called by the high priest Caiaphas to speak against Jesus. He said, we heard this fellow say, I can destroy the temple of God and in three days build it. I am able to destroy the temple, Jesus said, and build it again in three days. Matthew chapter 27, verse 63, the chief priests and the Pharisees came to Pilate saying, Sir, we remember that that deceiver said when he was yet alive, in three days I will rise again. Jesus said it while he was alive. And for this reason, 
Verse 64, Matthew 27, the chief priests and the Pharisees recommended to Pilate, command therefore that the sepulcher be made sure until the third day. Lest his disciples come by night and steal his body and tell the people he is risen from the dead so that the last error is worse than the first. They had heard him say that he would rise and Jesus was as good as his word. I admire Confucius and what he stood for. I admire Buddha and what he stood for, some of the things he stood for. I admire some of the principles that Islam propounds, praying, one God, fasting, help the poor, pilgrimage to holy places. I admire these people. I admire Florence Nightingale and what she did as a nurse in the Crimean War. I admire Mother Teresa and her self-sacrifice for the poor. I admire Jesus, but I must tell you publicly, my admiration for Jesus does not remain at the level of admiration. I not only admire Jesus, I worship Jesus Christ. I worship a man who has within himself the power to raise himself from the dead. And I must stress this because the point I will arrive at soon is that this is the same power that God uses to make transformations in our lives. The same power. 25 minutes after 7. I admire Jesus. I worship Jesus. I love Jesus. In the book of Ephesians chapter 1, reading from verse 19, the apostle Paul earnestly desiring the Ephesian members to understand how God functions in the life and the kind of power he exerts to lift up a man or a woman from degradation of sin. He said, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power to us who believe according to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead. Paul is saying the power that God uses, that he works in the life of the man or the woman that comes to him him is the same power that was used to raise Jesus Christ from the dead. Now, I may sound as if I'm giving conflicting statements. He raised himself. He was raised by someone else. No, he raised himself. But let me explain the power and why the Bible so often says that God raised him. You'll find that in Galatians chapter 1 verse 1, Acts chapter 2 verse 24, Acts 3 verse 15, Acts 4 verse 10, and elsewhere where it seems as if the Bible is saying the Father raised him. When God issues a command and it is carried out, he claims responsibility for the act. Are you following me? Let me give you an example. In Genesis 18, three men come to the tent of Abraham. Bible says in verse 1, And he lifted up his eyes, and lo, three men stood by him. And when he saw them, he ran to meet them from the tent door and bowed himself to the ground. In verse 6, he tells his wife, Sarah, And Abraham hastened into the tent unto Sarah, and said, Make ready quickly three measures of fine meal, knead it, and bake cakes upon the hearth. Verse 7, and Abraham ran into the herd and fetched a calf, tender and good. And he gave it unto a young man and he hastened to dress it. He wants to feed these three strangers whose identity he does not know. And I'm trying to explain why the Bible says God raised Jesus and why I can say Jesus raised himself. There is no conflict. In verse 8 of Genesis 18, the Bible says, And he took butter and milk 
and the calf which he addressed. And he set it before them, and he stood by them under the tree, and they did eat. Now look at verse 8 again. And he took butter and milk, and the calf which he had dressed. Now we know from verse 7 that Abraham ran into the herd and fetched a calf, tender and good, and he gave it unto a young man. And he hasted to dress it, not Abraham. Abraham did not physically dress that calf. He did not season it, but it was seasoned at his command. And the Bible says, the calf which he had dressed. In Genesis 12, reading from verse 1, the Bible says, Now the Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country, and from thy kindred, and from thy father's house, unto a land that I will show thee. And I will make of thee a great nation, and I will make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee, and curse him that curseth thee. And in thee shall all nations of the earth be blessed, all families. Now God commanded Abraham to leave Ur of the Chaldees. Verse 4 tells us, So Abram departed as the Lord had spoken unto him, and Lot went with him. And Abram was seventy and five years old when he departed out of Haran. In verse 1, God tells him to leave. In verse 4, Abraham leaves. Let's go to chapter 15, verse 7. This is God speaking. The Bible says, And he said unto him, I am the Lord that brought thee out of Ur of the Chaldees to give thee this land to inherit it. God claims responsibility. I am the Lord that brought thee out. Genesis chapter 20, when Abraham is explaining why he lied to Abimelech. In verse 13, he says to Abimelech, and it came to pass that when God caused me to wander from my father's house, God caused me to wander from my father's house. Genesis 24, verse 7. This is Abraham speaking to Eliezer, his, high, his highest servant. The Lord God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, and which spake unto me, and that swear unto me, saying, Unto thy seed will I give this land. Abraham is saying, God took me. So the responsibility is God's because he issued the command. Now, Jesus said in John chapter 10, reading from verse 16, and we shall identify that God gave the command, but Jesus did the raising. John 10, reading from verse 16 is 730. The Bible says, other sheep have I, which are not of this fold. Them also I must bring, and they will hear my voice, and there shall be one fold and one shepherd. Therefore doth my father love me, because I lay down my life that I might take it again. Verse 18. No man taketh it from me, says Jesus Christ, but I lay it down of myself. Now, listen to the ending of verse 18. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my Father. In other words, the Father had the authority to tell Jesus when to come from the grave. So when Jesus rose, he rose by his power and at the command of the Father. Because Jesus always had life in himself. What I am saying to you, my beloved brothers and sisters, whom God loves so much, and whom I, based on John 15, 12, am commanded to love, and I follow that command with pleasure. The power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is the same power God uses to transform your life. That's why after 
Paul writes in Ephesians 1, 19 and 20, And what is the exceeding greatness of His power to usward who believe, according to the working of His mighty power which He wrought in Christ, when He raised Him from the dead? Verse 1 of chapter 2 says, And you hath He quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. The same power that quickened Christ from the grave, in verse 20 of Ephesians 1, is the same power that quickens us from the grave of sin. It's the same power. Because sin is such a terrible thing that only a power capable of reversing death is capable of transforming the life of a sinner. And Jesus made it very clear to us, I possess that power. Because I came back from that which all sin leads to ultimately, finally, and that is death. The wages of sin is death. Jesus met death face to face. He submitted himself to death. Death held him for three days. And when the three days expired, the father said, Son, it's time to rise. Jesus flexed his divine muscles, broke asunder the bands of death, the bands of the hell, the cords of the grave, and he came up having destroyed death and hell, and he who had the power of death, which is the devil. What does this mean for you? What this means for you is that there is nothing, there is no power that the devil can exert in your life that Jesus Christ cannot cancel if you will give your life to Jesus Christ. After all, the power to break a habit your eye may have is not nearly that which is needed to reverse death. If Jesus, and I want you to hear me, I want to move slightly, brother cameraman, so I want to alert you so you can make the necessary artistic adjustments. Listen to me, please. I don't want you to raise your hands. Where you sit, you and I, where I stand, we are struggling with something. Don't raise your hands in confirmation. We are struggling with something. You may have a gambling addiction. Your problem may be congenital laziness. Yours may be the inability to handle money. It may be that you see no wisdom in having one girlfriend. It may be that you can't stop stealing. It may be that you feel called to cheat. It may be that you smoke and no one knows because you do it quietly. It may be any number of things that ruin us internally, even though for a time there is no outward evidence of that internal disintegration of the soul. What I'm saying to you, Whatever it is we're struggling with, the remedy is the power of Jesus Christ. I realize this is a center. It is a nerve center of intellectualism. And on a campus such as this, where science is perhaps the mantra, it is difficult for some people to entertain the thought of a reality that cannot be proven in a science laboratory. But the power of Christ cannot be proven by science as we know it. 
it is nonetheless real. It is real. And it is available to you for the transformation of your life. It is available to you in answer to your prayer for the transformation of the life of that child of yours who has gone astray. It is available to you in answer to your earnest, tearful prayer that your spouse may come back to Jesus Christ. It is available to you that that relative of yours languishing on a hospital bed may experience a dramatic recovery because Jesus still does that. The power is available to you that your children may perform well in school and having a mass academic distinction committed and dedicated to the cause of Christ. That power is yours for the asking. It is not diluted when it is given to you. It is in the same concentrated form. There is no such thing as three parts humanity to the divinity of Christ. When he gives you the power, he gives it straight. Because that's the only power that can reverse the curse of sin in your life and in mine. I am closing the book as I prepare to close the message 23 minutes to 8. I have tried to make it clear. I need not preach for an hour. It does not take God long to bless people. All He requires is an earnest heart. And God will respond in a microsecond. When Peter was drowning, he said, Lord, save me. You can speak those three words in less than a second. And in as much time it took Peter to say them, in even less time, Christ responded and saved him. Is there something in your life that requires the application of that power that Jesus demonstrated when he raised himself from the grave? There is no need. Let me say it again. There is no need to wrestle with burdens when Jesus Christ stands poised like an athlete in the blocks, waiting for the gun to go off that he may sprint down to that tape 100 meters. Christ is waiting in the blocks. All he asks of us to fire the gun of faith. And he will fly down the track of the cosmos through the agent, his spirit. And respond to your cry for help. And to mine. I have seen him do it. Where I've gone to speak. United States, Canada, Australia, England, South Africa, Kenya, Uganda, West Indies. I have seen him do it. He is no respecter of persons. He will do it for you. Tonight... I want to ask you to write something on a card. Did you get a little card? If you have them, I want you to fill it out. Here's what I'll do. I will take them with me. If you have a prayer request, put it on the card. And I will pray over those cards when I pray. I will literally scatter them on my bed that God can read them. 
This is what Hezekiah did in Isaiah 37:14, when he got a threatening letter from an invading army. The Bible says he took it into the temple and he spread it before the Lord. And I will pray for you. If you have a prayer request, I want you to write it on that piece of paper. Put your name so that God can see your name. You may say, yes, God knows my name. Yes, but you put your name. He wrote the Ten Commandments. After speaking it, he still wrote them, so there's a permanent written record. Write it so I can look at that name and say, Lord, bless Samuel or bless Essence or bless John or bless Paul. Call you by name. After having written your prayer request, I want you to make one more mark on that paper. If you've been blessed by what you heard, and you will simply say, I would like to know more about Jesus, just put an X on that card. That's all you do. Simple request. I would, even though you're already a Christian, I would like to know more about this Jesus who raised himself and this strange power which he has to transform lives. You want to know more about Christ? You simply put an X on that card. And if you will, it's not compulsory. Put a prayer request. Don't just put pray for me. That's a request, yes. But you're sick. Pastor, I am sick. Put it on there. Pastor, I have a child who has left Christ. Preacher, my spouse is ill. My husband has left the church. Whatever it may be, write it. Give it to the ushers. And I will take them. And I will pray for you. And I will pray for you from my heart. God bless you as you make those marks. And as you write those requests. Let me reassure you that as you sit where you sit, God loves you individually. Let me repeat that and say it differently, actually. God loves you as though no one else on the earth exists. That's how personally God loves you where you sit. And the word you is plural. God loves you. He loves you. Galatians 2.21, 2.20. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We must personalize the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. We must personalize the tremendous power he used to raise himself. We must personalize the grace of God. He died for me. He rose for me. Don't generalize it. Personalize it. And when you have gotten the full impact of the personal relationship, the personal investment Jesus and all of heaven made in you, then you are equipped of heaven to take that good news and generalize it to someone else. Personalize it tonight. Please, for God's sake. Have you written on the cards? Do we have ushers to collect them? Then I will pray and release you at a quarter to eight, 15 minutes ahead of time. And I do that, I want to be nice so that you come back tomorrow. 
I released the group earlier today at precisely 10 to 1 as I promised, and I hope they come back tomorrow. I want you to know that when I promise you something by the grace of God, I will try to keep my word. Now let me ask you, how many of you will try to come back tomorrow night? Raise your hand. Ah, I am encouraged. God bless you. Try to bring someone with you. Save a life in so doing. Bring someone with you that he or she might be exposed to the saving word that is found between the pages of this holy book. Are all the cards in? Are all the cards in? We have a lifted hand to my left. Please get that card. They are precious to me and to Christ. Get those cards, please. Get those cards. Here's a hand right back here. Thank you. Hand over there. Let me reassure you, I will be praying for you over those cards. If I get up at 3 o'clock in the morning, I will kneel and pray over those cards. When I can't sleep at night, I do two things. I either read the Bible or I try to memorize Scripture Now I have a th and pray. Now I have a fourth thing to do. I will be praying for you. As soon as the cards are picked up, I will ask you to stand. If that's not an imposition, and we will pray. Let us stand now. Notice the card also says, I would like to see the preacher. I think it says that. Does it say that? Don't hesitate to check that. Because I love one-to-one -one interactions. This is very general. I love this. But I love every one-to-one -one interaction Jesus had evangelistically. He won that person. He did not win all the crowds that came to him. All his one-to-one, -one, he won. There is power in one-to-one. And in that one-to-one, -one, you will really see that I mean it when I say there is love in my heart for you. Somebody say amen. Let us bow our heads. <clears throat> Father in heaven, we thank you so much for Jesus Christ. Even when we do not understand his power, we thank you for him. Lord, we pray that the words we heard tonight would remain on our hearts. Like water from heaven, they will seep through the soil of our minds right down to the very subconscious and change us from that level all the way up from the inside out. Bless every person here tonight, every family represented, I pray, dear God, from my heart. Take them safely as they travel, whether by car, motorcycle, bicycle, bus, however they travel, walking. Take them safely. Send angels to escort them. And watch over them as they sleep. Bless their families, their jobs, their health. Above all, Lord, draw them closer to Christ. Bring them back tomorrow night. Bring them tomorrow for the early service. And Father, as we come and we are exposed to this life-changing word, let us see the difference in our lives. Lord, accept my profound thanks for the high privilege you've given to me and the solemn responsibility of being your mouthpiece. And if I have disgraced you in any way in this pulpit, I apologize to you, Father, and ask you to help me to surrender more fully tomorrow, that you may use me more effectively. Bless us. Keep us. Bless this institution and its leaders, every student. And Father, if you see fit to raise us up tomorrow, 
Let us rise with the consciousness that we have been given one more day first to do your will. I offer this prayer in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.